Hey guys, and welcome back to History Written by the Losers. I'm Anika. And I'm Sudha. And today we're going to talk about a topic that is close to my heart, medical research. Yes, so a lot of us don't often think about medical research or the process that it takes to approve drugs. The coronavirus has shown a lot of us the process that it takes to approve a vaccine by the FDA and other bodies. But many of us still don't know the specifics. And one of the key things that highlights that are drug prices. If you look at drugs like insulin, you can tell that there is a lot of behind the scenes stuff that we don't know about. All of this proves that the medical research system is inherently broken. So if you look at it really, the way that we practice medicine these days is actually one form of medicine called allopathy. And there are other systems across the world which had sprung up and there were indigenous medicine methods too that have not been very popular in recent years. There's homeopathy, there is Ayurveda, there is Unani, there are lots of other ways of healing the human body. But if you think about why predominantly medicine is practiced the way it is, it's because there is the power of medical research that is behind a lot of modern medicine that we practice. The physicians who are training in the system are trained to believe in and practice evidence-based medicine, which means that we make recommendations based on facts. But this system is in disarray right now. One reason is because the entire medical research industry has become corrupt in many ways. And the other problem is that people have lost faith in the system. If you think about it, the only thing that a doctor offers you is advice. And if you don't trust the doctor, you're not going to take that advice seriously. So when people start losing faith in their doctors, it becomes a big crisis that will have repercussions across the medical system. So as we mentioned, there is a lot of corruption in the current medical research field and in the system. One of the main factors of this is the hyper-competitive grant system. So if you are a medical researcher, you are typically applying for grants to fund your research. And in order to get grants, you need to have experience and you need to have something that will back you up saying that you will use the money properly and you will research something that is of interest to modern medical advancements. So one of the biggest funding bodies that most researchers have access to is the National Institute of Health. And uh, typically, roughly about less than 10% of the grants get funded there. So if you think about it, there are good ideas in the 90% which never get funded. And so what happens to these people is that they're condemned to apply again and again. And they then try to game the system by doing research in areas that are considered hot or interesting. Like right now, coronavirus, everybody becomes a coronavirus researcher. And uh, the other thing they do is they say, okay, I'm just not going to do research anymore. I'm just going to see patients. And so we lose many bright young minds every year because they come up against this lack of funding. Another problem with this is that most researchers that are in academia are working towards being tenured, which is one of the most prestigious opportunities that they can have. Because of that, and because of this hyper-competitive grant-making and tight labor markets, an unsustainable working condition has been created in academic medicine. 
So pharmaceutical companies also do research and they are another source of funding for researchers who want to work in certain areas. The problem really is that if you're working for a pharmaceutical company, you have to work on whatever they feel is going to make profits for their company. So it may or may not be aligned with your own interests. The second problem really, which is I would say now, if not rampant, but getting there, is this pressure to publish or perish, which means that your career is made only if you keep publishing. And so if you conduct a big study, but somehow the results are not adding up or it doesn't look like you are saying anything significant, there is no market to publish negative studies or which say, oh, we did not show a difference or we did not find any benefit. So everyone tries their best to make a positive study. And many times, as happens with human nature, people tend to falsify data. And we saw that more very recently with, you know, coronavirus. Another example is that vaccine research, a lot of uh, people became anti-vaxxers after they thought that there was some connection between the MMR vaccine and autism. And that study was actually published by a researcher who had falsified data and had to retract the entire study. Unfortunately, the original study got a lot more press, but the retraction did not. And so because of that, we still have this big group of people who are not able to place their trust in vaccines. But falsified data is not just used for modern day vaccines and diseases. Data has been falsified by researchers since medical research first started, especially when it pertains to race. The first time that the world actually came to know about human experimentation being conducted unethically to gain data was actually during the 1940s. Nazi doctors conducted human experiments on prisoners in concentration camps. One of these doctors there was Joseph Mengele who achieved a lot of notoriety and I don't really want to uh, give him more publicity but he conducted agonizing and painful torture on twins who were in the concentration camps and all of this came out during the Nuremberg trials which were conducted at the end of the war. Yes, and the Nuremberg trials led to the Nuremberg Code of 1947 because global attention began to be focused on the rights of participants to freely consent and freely withdraw from any human research project. Right, but even after the Nuremberg Code was adopted for decades, there were government-funded research conducted in many countries which did not always satisfy the principles that were laid down in the Nuremberg Code. One of the most famous of these is something that you may have even read about in school is the Tuskegee trial. So if you hear about cases where medical ethical testing rules were not followed, you typically will hear about the Tuskegee trials. In 1932, 600 African-American men from Macon County, Alabama were enlisted to partake in a scientific experiment on syphilis. This became a 40-year study, and the goal was to observe untreated syphilis in black populations. However, the subjects were unaware of the experiment and were told instead that the treatments they were receiving were for quote-unquote bad blood. Many of them didn't even receive treatment even after it had been developed. 
And to really understand why the Tuskegee experiment was so heinous on top of that unconsenting experimentation was to understand the societal context because this was in the early 20th century and the cultural and medical landscape was still built upon racist concepts. So social Darwinism was rising and scientific racism was common at that time, which was basically a pseudo-scientific practice of people using science to reinforce racial biases, falsifying data. In the case of black people, doctors believed that they were extremely prone to sexually transmitted infections like syphilis, and low birth rates and high miscarriage rates were universally blamed on the sexually transmitted diseases. So... In 1933, the year after the study began, the researchers decided they wanted to continue the study long term, and they started giving patients ineffective medicines to further their belief that they were being treated, using the placebo effect. The horror of it all was that by that time, penicillin was available and was known to be a very effective treatment for syphilis. In fact, they went beyond that. Multiple times throughout the experiment, the researchers actively worked to ensure that the subjects who were enrolled in the study did not receive penicillin for syphilis from other doctors in the area. Yes, in 1941, many of the men that were drafted for the war had their syphilis uncovered by the entrance medical exam. So the researchers had their men removed from the army rather than let their syphilis be treated. Eventually, the Henderson Act was passed in 1943, which required tests and treatments for STDs to be publicly funded. And by 1947, penicillin had become the standard treatment. And this prompted the USPHS to open several rapid treatment centers to treat syphilis with penicillin. So, while they were actively preventing 399 men in the Tuskegee trials from receiving penicillin, they were also opening up rapid treatment centers for white people to get treatment. It wasn't until a whistleblower, Peter Buxton, leaked information about the study to the New York Times and the paper published it on their front page in 1972 that finally there was an internal review that was conducted and the recommendation of the committee was that the study should end. By this time, only 74 of the test subjects were still alive and their families had been affected as well. Because of this, the NAACP launched a class action lawsuit against the USPHS and it settled the suit two years later for $10 million, agreeing to pay the medical treatments of all of the surviving participants and infected family members. Largely in response to this Tuskegee study, the National Research Act was passed in 1974 and the Office of Human Research Protections was established in the USPHS. However, the damage that had been done to the public psyche with the Tuskegee trial is irreparable. Even today, there is a lot of mistrust uh, in black communities. And we know that historically, the number of people of color who sign up for research is very, very low. And this is a factor that plays in many people's minds when they're asked to participate in research. As one of the participants in the Tuskegee trial said to an interviewer, they just took us up here and made guinea pigs of us. The one thing that the Tuskegee trial didn't do that they are falsely accused of doing was infecting their Tuskegee participants with syphilis, which was not the case. However, there have been many experiments where that was the case. 
the U.S. and Guatemalan governments co-sponsored a study involving the deliberate infection of Guatemalan prisoners and mental asylum patients with syphilis around 1946 and 1948. This was a study in which they actually gave syphilis actively to people who were incarcerated. And this study was only uncovered recently by Wellesley College Professor Susan Reverby. Her records that she uncovered indicated that there was no follow-up and no informed consent by the participants. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius issued a joint statement apologizing for these experiments. But the damage had been done. However, this study was part of a long trend of studies that disproportionately affected communities of color. As recently as the 1990s, a study sought to identify a genetic origin for aggressive behavior, and enrollment was restricted to black and Latino boys and families were incentivized with money. Furthermore, the children were taken off medications and they were deprived of water, subjected to hourly blood draws, and given fenfluramine, a drug known to be associated with precipitating aggressive behavior. The study design itself perpetuated the stereotype of black males as perpetrators of violence, which is a distorted and biased perception that continues to cost black people their lives. And this didn't just start happening in the 1990s. It's a trend that we can trace as far back as the 19th century. Even in medical school, we were taught about all the tools and instruments that were used, and one of them was the Sims speculum, which we all used and learned about this Dr. Sims, but it was only later, much later, that I came to find out the horrifying story behind James Marion Sims and his experiments on black women. Although he is credited as the father of modern gynecology, and he has developed all of these tools for dilation and examination, Many people say that Sims cared more about the experimentation than in providing treatment to his patients. And in doing so, he caused untold suffering by operating under the racist notion that black people do not feel pain. They say that his use of enslaved black bodies as medical test subjects falls into a long, ethically bereft history of medical apartheid. For a long time, Sims surgeries, which were essentially for recto-urethral fistulas, they were not successful. He kept on repeating these surgeries on enslaved women. After 30 operations on one woman, a 17-year-old enslaved woman named Anarka, who had had a very traumatic labor and delivery, he finally perfected his method after four years of experimenting on this unfortunate young woman. Afterwards, he began to practice what he had learned on her on white women, but using anesthesia for them, which was new to the medical field at the time. His decision not to use anesthesia on his black patients or any other numbing technique at all was based on his misguided belief that black people didn't experience pain like white people did. This is still a notion that persists today, according to a study conducted by the University of Virginia. So Sims defenders may say that he was simply a man of his time and the end justified the means for all of his advances in the field of gynecology. But if you look at the way he treated the people that he experimented on, it is horrifying, and we will never know the true story because history hasn't recorded their voices. Maybe we should start calling it the Anarcha Speculum instead of the Sims Speculum. We cannot talk about racism in medicine without bringing up the name of Henrietta Lacks. 
Henrietta Lacks cells are called HeLa cells and they are immortal cell line that is used in scientific research extensively. Yes. Henrietta Lacks was a 31-year-old African-American mother of five and she died of cancer in 1951. Her cell line was found to be remarkably durable and prolific, which allows it to be used extensively in scientific study. So the cells from Lax's cancerous cervical tumor were taken without her knowledge or her consent, which was a common practice at the time. Mrs. Lax's cells were unlike any of the other cells that scientists had seen at that time, and they are actually called immortal cell lines because they double every 20 to 24 hours and do not die. In the 1950s and 60s, scientists started injecting HeLa cancer cells into healthy individual cancer patients and prison inmates from the Ohio Penitentiary. This experiment also raised many bioethical concerns about informed consent and some of the subjects, namely those who already had cancer, were unaware that they were being injected with malignant cells. Now HeLa cells, which are named after the first two letters of Henrietta Lacks' first and last name, are used to study the effects of toxins, drugs, hormones, and viruses on the growth of cancer cells without having to worry about the issue of consent with human experimentation. However, this issue persists every time they experiment on these cells because they were taken without consent. So although there are many examples of this kind of medical racism against people of color, inequity in research was not limited just to people of color. In 1939, speech pathologists at the University of Iowa wanted to prove their theory that stuttering was a learned behavior caused by a child's anxiety about speaking. Unfortunately, the way they went about it is that they went to the Ohio Soldiers and Sailors Orphans Home and they enlisted orphans in the study and they told them that they were showing signs of stuttering and they should not speak unless they could be sure that they would speak right. The experiment did not induce stuttering, but it did make formerly normal children anxious, withdrawn, and silent. This study was later dubbed the monster study. In that category of disadvantaged populations that many people have taken advantage of are native populations, not just in the US, across the world. In the 1920s and 30s, Aboriginal Australians were subjected to medical experiments on how they experienced pain. These experiments were motivated by a system of scientific racism and were carried out by researchers from the University of Adelaide. Canada has also historically carried out unethical medical experiments on indigenous populations. In 1933, 600 native children from the reserves near Quapel, Saskatchewan, were enrolled in a trial to test the tuberculosis vaccine. In both the control and treatment groups, nearly a fifth died from exposure, malnutrition, and other causes. Parental consent was not sought for indigenous children, although it was sought for non-indigenous. The British Army used hundreds of British and native British Indian Army soldiers as guinea pigs in experimentations to determine if mustard gas inflicted greater damage on Indian skin compared to British skin. Another area where there were a lot of mistakes made by many countries was the process of sterilization. In the US, over the six-year period that followed the passage of the Family Planning Services and Population Research Act of 1970, physicians sterilized perhaps 25% of Native American women of childbearing age. 
The actual numbers may be even higher because records were not kept accurately. Some of these procedures were performed under pressure or duress and without the women's knowledge or understanding of what was happening to her body. What this all led to was the Istanbul Convention which prohibited forced sterilization in most European countries. Widespread or systematic forced sterilization has become recognized as a crime against humanity by the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. However, it does not have universal jurisdiction. Prominent examples are the United States, Russia and China which have excluded themselves from this. Forced sterilization programs are rampant. They are still ongoing in many countries. They have been done in the past in countries like Bangladesh, India, China has a one child policy, Russia has their own version of it. So these medically sanctioned human atrocities are still going on. One more group that many countries abuse and overlook are third world countries, especially in Africa. So in 1994, United States drug companies began conducting trials of the drug AZT on HIV-positive African subjects with the goal of developing treatments to reduce the transmission of HIV and AIDS during childbirth. The program tested over 17,000 Zimbabwean women for the efficacy of AZT. Half of the women were given a placebo rather than the drug, and the subjects were not informed of the potential dangers of the treatment. According to Peter Lamptey, the heads of the AIDS Control and Prevention Program, if you interviewed the people in the study, most wouldn't understand to what they had actually consented. An estimated of a thousand newborns of women in the study contracted HIV and AIDS, although this could have been avoided by treating the women with known drugs. This testing was stopped in 1998 when the CDC claimed that they had obtained sufficient data from experiments in another third world country, Thailand. So what has all of this led to? What are the changes that have been made? In the 1960s, largely through the efforts of Henry Nowell's Beecher, the US research community recognized the need to change its attitudes and practices towards human research. In his seminal 1966 paper, Henry Beecher compiled 50 studies that were unethical and in direct violation of the Nuremberg Code published after World War II. The Belmont Report was later written by the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research. The commission was created as a result of the National Research Act of 1974 and was formed mainly after the Tuskegee trials. Right, so these reports were all ways of making sure that researchers in the future would have a framework and guideline as to what constituted ethical research. And today, any serious researcher in the country has to have knowledge of all of these atrocities and the laws that govern medical research before they're allowed to go near patients. One recent case that has raised a lot of concerns with this is the Chinese scientist He Jianqui's use of CRISPR to modify twin babies' DNA before their birth. He was trying to make the babies resistant to HIV. However, many other scientists say that this was unethical. So bioethics is a very tricky field and there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered to prevent unethical and immoral research from continuing on. That's right. The pace of research is very fast, but every time we make advancements in the field of medical research, we also have to keep up with the ethics part of it and make sure that the 
ways that are proposed and the means that are used to conduct these research are not harming populations. So what are the continued medical biases that are still in place today? Well, most healthcare providers appear to have implicit bias in terms of positive attitudes towards whites and negative attitudes towards people of color, according to an NCBI study. Only 17.7% .7 of patients that were assigned to receive extra care were black. Researchers calculate that this proportion would be 46.5% if the algorithm were unbiased. There's other ways in which bias creeps into modern medicine. If you look at normative data, which is the standard by which we judge things like height, weight, body mass index, blood pressures, all of this normative data is essentially from Caucasian populations. One key example of this are in atlases that are medical students use, especially dermatology atlases. Most of them only show rashes and other skin problems on white skin. This is changing though. Many young students, including Malone Mukwende, decided that they wanted to change that and put together an anthology of dermatology on darker skin colors. Many similar anthologies have also been popping up. And this is what gives us hope. People recognizing the problems in this industry and implementing changes. So let's face it, the unethical practices in the field of medicine are widespread and vast, and it is very hard to imagine what a different system, a transparent system would look like. However, what has been made clear through all of these revelations and these examples that we have talked about in this episode is that these problems are systemic. Right. This is not just about individual biases that we all have. Although they surely play an important role in the system, this oppression is something that is wired into the way our world functions. So what can we do about it? Of course, we can vote for good, fair leaders, but more importantly, we need to continue the fight for justice outside of the voting booth, especially if you're not old enough to vote. Recognizing and calling out yourself and your loved ones for your negative inherent biases, supporting important causes, whether with your money or your time, and educating yourself. Trying to see things from a different perspective. History is being written right now, and you need to decide whose side you'll be on. For the sake of our world, we hope you'll choose the losers. Thank you guys so much. We hope you have enjoyed season one. We will be back on the last Sunday of every month with a new episode for you guys. And we'd love your feedback. Make sure that you follow us at History Losers on Twitter and at History Written by the Losers on Instagram. This, this has, has been, been History Written, written by, by the Losers. losers.